Hello, my lovies. Welcome back to another episode of Did You Read the Book, a comparative podcast where movie buffs and bookworms come together to talk about stories and their adaptations that we love, hate, or love to hate. I am your host, Erin Palmer, and today I am joined by the lovely Julie and Kendall. Hello, ladies. Welcome. Hello. Hello. I am Julie's excitement. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. could not agree more. Welcome, Julie's excitement. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm so happy to have you guys on the show. Julie, you're just basically a permanent fixture. Welcome back. And Kendall, this is your first time on the show. So welcome. Thank you. Yes, I am excited about this topic. And Julie already kind of gave a nice little teaser. So we'll just pick on Julie again. What are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about the novel Fight Club, uh, Chuck Palahniuk's first novel that he published in 1996, way back when. Wow, wow, wow. It's pretty great. And on the flip side, Kendall, what is the adaptation? The adaptation is um, also called Fight Club, and it is David Fincher's 1999 film. Woohoo. There's some crazy good casting for this film. So good. It's, it's so good. So good. Yeah, uh solid casting. I feel like I say this a lot, but this is pretty great. Pretty great. All right. Cool. Well, let's get into it. Uh you know the drill. Spoilers. Lots of things are going to be discussed in great detail. So, if you don't want things spoiled, hit that pause button, go do your thing and come back to me and listen as we dive into this mess. All right, and before we get started, the age-old question to Julie and Kendall, are you pro-source or pro-adaptation? Well, I mean, I know it's my usual go-to in these episodes (laughs) to go (laughs) with the adaptation, and I will say I have been watching Fight Club since I was a wee child, so I will say my nostalgia makes me pro-adaptation in this source by a thin margin. Yeah reasonable that makes sense mm-hmm. um i really like them both i love this book and i love this movie and um i actually preferred the ending of the adaptation but overall i am pro source on this one yeah Yep, I'm right there with you. I saw the movie many, many times before I, I read the book, so I definitely have a nostalgia like filter on this for sure from mm-hmm. the film perspective. But yeah, I think I agree to both of those statements. All right, well, let's get into it. Miss Julie, kick us off. Could you give us a synopsis of the book, please? Yes, yes, yes. Um, So a man disillusioned from the corporate consumer lifestyle is introduced to Tyler Durden, a mysterious young man who works nights as a guerrilla terrorist in the food and movie industries. As he finds himself drawn more and more into Tyler Durden's world, his life transitions from spreadsheets, condos, and support groups to blood, bones, and brutality. Fight Club starts as an after-hours underground fight beneath bars and businesses, but as Tyler's influence grows, where will Fight Club go when there are no limits and everyone's in a race to the bottom? Ooh, I love that. Is that on the back of the book? No. No. (laughs) It is not, actually. I wrote that myself. Oh, did you really? Yes. Julie! Oh, my God. All right. You are number two to have written a description. And, of course, Dan is like, putting that bar absurdly high but yes (laughs) love it that's why i was like no (laughs) Uh, i thought you were being facetious but that's fine totally wrote it awesome well it's wonderful i love it we have a writer in our midst and we weren't aware of it or maybe you were i don't know (laughs) (laughs) all right well break it down like what do we what what do we like what don't we like tell me all your thoughts i'm gonna sit here until somebody talks (laughs) 
I introduce, so I say Kendall goes first. <laughs> okay, okay, then Kendall gets to go first. All right, break it down. Great. So, okay, talking about the book specifically first, the yes. likes and don't likes. Yes. Okay. I'm a big, big Chuck Palahniuk fan. I love how he writes. I love his style. He's just like a very cheeky narcissist. And so, I don't know, everything that he does is done with a lot of humor. And I think that it's really um, impressive to take a book with sort of a like a very dark theme and make it still very funny Yeah, and have a lot of really poignant social commentary that is still relevant today. Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy how relevant some of this is. And I keep, I've read the book a couple of times now just to like digest it more. And I kept forgetting that this was written in 96. Uh-huh. Like it's wild. <laughs> yes. It could have been written yesterday. Yeah. It's nuts. And it's, oh, it's such good writing. It's so good. Like Julie and I have been quoting it back and forth for the last like two weeks of the like the ridiculous one-liners in it, and it's there's it's just such good writing. I don't know. There's how so to... many. There's so yeah. many. Yeah. Julie, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, about the writing, I feel like I could flip open any page of the book right here in front of me and be able to grab a quote and just be like, oh my god. <laughs> so good. Um, but uh, it is both timeless and a product of its time because it kind of reminded me of a lot of other films and stories being made in the mid to late uh, 90s and early aughts about like uh, other works about like disillusionment of your existence and yearning for excitement of if not like a better life at least a different life yeah and this one kind of follows that same uh, vibe not to say that it like you know followed a trend I would say it was like the beginning of a trend yeah <laughs> more like but it, it does kind of fall into that vein of story yeah mm-hmm. I definitely agree I think that it starts out and you're like, oh, this is interesting. It's like he's he's getting out of his comfort zone and trying new things and it takes this crazy ass turn. And, yeah. and I, it, it's like unlike anything I've ever seen or read. And I, it's, I'll just say this forever and ever. It's so good. <laughs> I can't handle it. Uh, yeah. Well, what what are your thoughts on the kind of the protagonist of the story? I find it interesting, although I'll, I'll notice it is a theme in not all of Polonek's books, but a, a, quite a few of them, that the main character does not have a name. Yeah. Because in, in Fight Club and Project Mayhem, there are no names. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yep. And since it is told in the first person, you can really like insert yourself into that main character, especially since uh, we don't really get a sense of who he is. We don't really get a sense of who he is before we're kind of like just kind of like how he falls into Tyler Durden's world of like the small agree um, agreements uh, and the small yeses and the small that makes sense. He -hmm. also has like, you know, these like, you know, little opinions on society that like, you know, we find ourselves nodding with like, oh, yeah, I agree with that. Oh, yeah. Like I, you know. I identify with you on that topic too. And so as he becomes, uh, as he becomes more like Tyler, we become more like the narrator and thus more like Tyler as we read the book. Um, yeah. Well, and then he has no name, but he has several names. Cause when he goes to his, like yeah. uh, his support groups, he mm-hmm. changes his name in and out. So it's like, you never really know what's going on. And then, you know, he starts to become Tyler essentially. Like he starts to merge almost with Tyler, but it's, he's still not Tyler either. It's, wild mm-hmm. uh kendall what are your thoughts yeah i think that that was a really interesting point talking about how like we can put ourselves in the shoes of the narrator because mm-hmm. he has no name and i know for me personally i didn't really even realize that i was doing that but 
I have certainly found myself being, you know, disillusioned with the way that life goes. You can fall into your routines and it just becomes a pattern and it gets boring and you just sort of feel stuck. And Mm -hmm. it's really interesting to think about like what happens if you are sort of forced out of that. Like if your world is just completely shaken by something Mm -hmm. that you are totally unfamiliar with. And I mean, I think a lot of us kind of need that. Like that's not necessarily a bad thing, obviously not to this extent, but yeah, Yeah. I think that there's uh, a lot of benefit and a lot of positive things that can be gleaned from a story like that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he's an interesting character, very multifaceted, um, obviously. I mean, you know, aside from the obvious, but yeah, it's fun to to read in in the book. It's fun to sort of watch his progression as he slowly starts to become Tyler. And I know for me, yeah, I also saw the movie before I read the book Mm -hmm. a long, long time ago. But then going back and rereading the book, you can start to pick up like the exact moments where that starts to happen. And that's really exciting to be able to actually see that kind of unfold. Yeah. Because like for the first time, when you watch it for the first time or read it for the first time, you have no idea what's happening. So Mm -hmm. it's cool to see those little hints come through. Yeah. Yeah. And the the kind of underlying current of I know this because Tyler knows this Mm -hmm. like that you that comes up over and over and over and just all the he's like I hear Tyler's words coming out of my mouth and it's it's just like it's genius Mm -hmm. writing to because you you don't realize it that first or maybe even that second pass through and then the more you start to kind of digest what he's writing you know it's genius (laughs) it's Mm -hmm. just it's genius (laughs) you also kind of see his own will and desires fading away if he ever had them because Mm -hmm. not only is it Tyler's words coming out of my mouth or you know reminding me of my first fight of Tyler he also says Mm -hmm. Tyler told me to say this Tyler told me to write this down and make 72 copies Tyler Mm -hmm. told me to blah 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 Mm -hmm. it was never oh I decided to go do this oh I typed this up it was like no Tyler 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 told me to do things and I did it (laughs) yeah it, it is interesting that you know I I, I talked a little bit with Julia offline about this, but I am curious about your thoughts, Kendall, as far as um, with this character of the protagonist and Tyler Durden, do you think that this is like an example or I, I guess a, a very kind of elaborate example of like dissociative disorder or like multiple personality disorder? I know I'm saying the wrong words. I don't remember what it's called now, so I apologize. Um Julia also schooled me on this and I already forgot it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, do you, like, what are your thoughts on that kind of a mental state representation? Yeah, that's one thing that I think is especially interesting about this book and the movie is that the whole dissociative identity disorder trope is really overplayed and, you know, it gets pretty cringy pretty fast mm-hmm. um, and can be really problematic in a lot of ways. But I think the way that this is written doesn't feel the same as those other stories. It could very easily just be sort of a, you know, grand metaphor for us having different identities, being different people in different situations. And so that's typically something that I'm pretty like hypersensitive to is sort of the portrayal of, you know, mental illness, mental wellness in media. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's something that I do think is really unique to this story is that it doesn't necessarily need to be perceived so literally to be able to have the story be successful. Right. Yeah. Cause it isn't, it isn't one thing. That's the thing. It's like if you're trying to actually drill down to what it is, there's multiple things going on there from a clinical sp- perspective. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not really a one kind of 
diagnosis. So it was, it was just fascinating to see all of these different kind of men- mental illnesses or mental states kind of simultaneously happening. But it's not it's not put in a way that is making you think, oh, this person is straight up crazy. Like right. you, that's not really the thought process that you have with this character until the end when they do that, that, you know, they flip a switch or like, holy shit. Like, mm-hmm. but even then it's like, it seems like the protagonist is trying to regain control and Tyler is kind of the one that's off the rails. And that kind of coming to a head at the end of the book is is more of the dynamic than, oh, this is a crazy person and we're just going to talk to you about how this dude's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. so good. It's it's unlike anything I've ever read. I, I'm repeating myself yet again. Um, I think yeah. that also has largely in part to do with keeping it as a first person narrative. It's always I, I, I. Um, that way we never see an outside perspective on what this internal dynamic looks like to outsiders like uh i I won't talk about the movie but uh (laughs) you know and when like you know marla learns about it she's not like you know you have this thing tell me all about it like you know break it down clinically for me (laughs) you know she's just like cool and just runs with it it's like all right uh and um i think it's since it, it it does keep it more or less internal and we do not get an outside perspective on it. It stays in the realm of narrative of a character as opposed to a representation of an illness. Yeah. If you catch my meaning. No, totally. Yeah. 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 And and that's the thing that I, I, I keep coming back to with both the book and the movie. It's like, okay, so we're seeing, especially from the book where it's all from his perspective, I would stop and be like, God, I wonder what this looks like from the other side, especially when it comes to Marla. And um, it's, it must be just, it must look crazy because it's like, he's hot, he's cold. Like what's hot? He, it, and like Tyler isn't here. And and she's like, why are you talking about yourself in the third person? Like it, it must be just wild from the other side. And I can't even imagine. And they, they don't really like what Julie, what you were saying, they don't focus on what that dynamic must be like at all which is again kind of the subtleties of how you don't catch it right away because they're not putting any sort of attention on it until the very end and it's only because the narrator slash the protagonist is the one that actually comes to that realization not that somebody else points it out to him he comes to that uh, that understanding himself eventually mm-hmm. yeah. yeah he only seeks confirmation from others of what he suspects because right. I mean, as soon as you suspect that you begin to think you're crazy and if you're crazy you can't trust your own right conclusions about yourself right mm-hmm. right and it's wild too to think you know the the big drive for the protagonist versus when tyler switch over is you know he falls asleep and then tyler kind of takes the reins and there's a huge focus on how he's an insomniac for most of the beginning before tyler kind of comes into the play it's crazy to think that you know the thought process of him saying okay well i fall asleep and then i'm falling asleep longer and longer and longer so then how much of me is still left or is it tyler taking over longer every single time and that again that kind of like his world gets totally destroyed at the end where he's like oh my god am i me anymore because tyler is just completely taken over 
And it's interesting how sort of throughout both the book and the movie, you had mentioned that there's this emphasis on him having insomnia. And mm-hmm. once he meets Tyler, that just sort of fades away. Like that's not really a focus anymore. Right. But it still also kind of works because, you know, you find out that he can go to these meetings and it can sort of help his insomnia. And so it, it feels natural that that exactly. would just go away. It's not jarring that suddenly that's not a focus anymore. And then yeah. once he, you know, figures out who Tyler is, then that starts to be something he's thinking about again yeah well in the book actually the insomnia does come back in the later chapters uh he and he's trying to find go back find and go back to the support groups so just so he can sleep and fix it yeah yeah uh because even though he was doing fight club because it became a replacement for it once he was starting to you know be excluded from project mayhem once he was starting to have doubts about tyler and feel that rejection even from you know that new area in his life the insomnia Mm -hmm. came back the disillusionment and the dread of your own life came back even with this new exciting life he was living it still wasn't enough because perfection only lasts for a moment (laughs) yeah i am curious to to think like he mentions the insomnia comes back so then i'm curious i'll have to go back and reread that section but i i can't remember like is Tyler just kind of silent for most of that until, yeah. So he just kind of like leaves for Mm -hmm. that period of insomnia. And then once that goes away, we're back to Tyler taking over and it's, it's just such clever construction of a story. And it's so subtle. That's what just like drives me up the wall, how subtle it is. And, and, and and I knew the twist and it's still, I'm still finding these subtleties in the writing. (laughs) It's so good. Um, Any other thoughts? That you want to bring up uh, just thinking that uh in the book it's mentioned that he he feels like he's a 30 year old boy and yeah. i was thinking about that a lot about my love for the book and my love for the film but how those feelings have changed as i've gotten older because i watched the movie about a year or two after it came out which would have made me about 11, 11. 12 years old yeah yeah you <laughs> as you me. do <laughs> Uh, and I read the book not too much longer after that, I think 13 or 14. And when you're a teenager watching these things, you know, as much as you don't want to acknowledge it when you are a teenager, you you have a very immature brain and very yep. immature thoughts. Yep. And watching Fight Club and reading Fight Club, oh my God, these are so cool. Yes, burn it all to the ground. Yes, everything <laughs> is awful. Yes, yeah. everyone who's been hurt deserved it. Yeah, yeah. And reading it now as an adult you kind of see the satire for what it is uh and the horror moments for what they are mm-hmm. and it kind of made me think a lot about catcher in the rye oh god and yeah. when you read it as a teenager versus reading it as an adult totally different uh, and how the narrator is a lot like holden caulfield uh mm-hmm. both first person narratives i believe but the character is named in that one and they both have the idea of like you know The whole world sucks. I'm smarter or more clever than everyone around me. And I have all these ideas about either bringing everyone down or making something better. But the main difference is that Holden Caulfield ultimately wants to protect, like, you know, the one good thing he's found in the world. Whereas the narrator in Fight Club just wants to destroy everything that he can't appreciate for one reason or another. Yeah. And I think that was a very... 90s urge sometimes yeah (laughs) but it's also a very immature urge of like i can't have i don't get it i will destroy it therefore nobody can have it exactly (laughs) yeah 
Absolutely. Yeah, that, that line mm-hmm. of I'm a 30-year-old boy, it – God, I like – unpacking that alone and that really kind of is the summation of everything that happens in the book and of like his kind of drive is like the undercurrent drive of everything that happens and it's again it's so poignant and so topical today especially like uh, I was thinking like incels and stuff like that where like that whole mentality it's just so crazy how relatable that is right now for being so old of a of, I mean I say old older book and it's it's wild like what are, do have you guys felt like there's a correlation with that at all when you were kind of revisiting this yeah I think that's especially true re-watching the movie yeah. because you know with there's so many similarities between the book and the movie but I do feel like sort of one of the overarching kind of societal messages of the book is class, you know, class struggle, class divide. But for the movie, it's masculinity and modern masculinity. What does that look like? And I'm really glad that you brought up sort of looking at the book and the movie with fresh eyes as an adult compared to your perspectives when you were younger. Mm -hmm. Because I, yeah, I had a really interesting reaction, especially watching the movie where I felt like it was a totally different film than it Mm -hmm. was when I first saw it. And yeah, yeah, I think that there really is something to be said about that, about the sort of 30-year-old boy mentality and how that's, yeah, probably how it's speaking to a lot of men today. Yeah, and I know that um, Julie shared a, a great article that I'll have to share with you later about how the the term snowflake, people are kind of attributing that phrase to like it came from this book, even though that was never the intent of, you know, like you are not an individual, beautiful snowflake. Like you, individuality is not the goal. It's, you know, nobody has a name and Project Mayhem, is, it's not about the individuals. It's about the, the conglomerate. And it's interesting to see how that concept has taken off in today's like kind of sphere, I guess. I'm just curious what your guys' thoughts are on that. I think it's been a, it's, it's an insult that's been attributed to Fight Club. Uh, I don't know if that is the true origin of it. Uh, yeah. um, I In that article I sent you, uh, the author Chuck Palahniuk mentioned that it was a term he made for himself to break out of, you know, the, the loop he had found himself in, the loop of his lifestyle, where yeah. he had to tell himself that, you know, unlike what his teachers told him, he wasn't a special snowflake that people will hand things to because he's special and smart. He needed to tell himself that, no, I'm not special. I am stupid. I need to work to get myself out of this. So mm-hmm. that was a tool that he had used. And so a lot of himself gets written into his books. Mm-hmm. It was never meant as an insult towards people of like, oh, aren't you a special little snowflake, which is what the uh, What's it turned into <laughs> the right wing uh media and people are using as a snowflake uh, as a term against liberal people or people who are in any way in disagreement with them as you know oh you're just a snowflake as in oh aren't you like you know precious and special and delicate which is fascinating because that sort of if if snowflake is being used in a negative way the implication is then that you know project mayhem is the correct direction to take like if right. you know it's yeah it's interesting to think about it I didn't realize that people were attributing that to the fight club but that did catch my eye rereading it that that mm-hmm. popped up a couple of times yeah it's interesting to to see that you know obviously that was not the intent that was like with Julie like we were saying where he was doing it for kind of 
a way to work through his issues and how he's kind of having to reconstruct his life and then for it to be taken in like such a crazy direction and it's totally out of context um which i mean everybody's entitled to do that but it was just fascinating to see how that's kind of morphed over the decades since it was written well i was i was rereading the book over the weekend and uh it struck me that this book is kind of like a horror novel for rich people oh my god yeah (laughs) this is what they fear that the that poor people (laughs) this is what they fear poor people will do to them yeah you know that they will taint their food that they will uh, destroy their homes or um psychologically torment them like that whole scene of um tyler catering like a private party and he just put that note among the hostess's the perfumes. perfumes saying i have put an amount of urine into one of your perfumes and but he didn't actually lo- do it he didn't actually do it no yeah. but she just lost her mind uh and it, since he never admitted to it to her she's gonna spend the rest of her life like hating all of her friends suspecting her husband and just her her life will never be in peace again just from a single note yeah. <laughs> uh, and when tyler is confronted with it when the others had at first laughed because haha isn't that funny rich lady got scared mm-hmm. uh they saw the outcome of it like she's gibbering on the side of the toilet and like throwing things at her husband uh they're like dude i think you i think you went too far and he like you know immediately becomes defensive and is like don't you know they kill whales to make that perfume and blah 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 which is interesting because later on in the book the narrator specifically is going on about how he wants every fish deserves to be belly up he wants to destroy all the deer and the wildlife and the birds in the sky and it's like you're 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 not upset about whales being killed yeah 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 (laughs) you just use things to justify your behavior and as uh, as soon as you no longer need it you dump it Yeah. Uh, And I think that's the horror aspect for sure Mm -hmm. is like, especially like when we talk about the classist kind of divide, that's, that's scary from, I think like a rich perspective. But then for me, you know, I don't associate myself as being a rich person. So me, I'm kind of on like the plebe side of the fence. And from my perspective, Tyler's character is terrifying for multiple reasons. And it's, I think the justification for what ends up happening is the scariest part. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of mind blowing to think that I mean like this is this is a kind of a thought process that people can not only get to but easily justify and like ramp up and it's like the kind of mob mentality that comes with that too which is like the whole project mayhem kind of becomes that it's terrifying yeah <laughs> also what's terrifying about Tyler is that he is kind of like the uh, embodiment of a cult leader yeah because uh, totally. I mentioned earlier, it's those small agreements. That's how that's how most cult people get you. And that's how most cults start. You start with like the small agreements. Like, yes, yes, there is a problem. Yes. Oh, yes, that I, I do hate when that happens. Or, oh, yes, I, I do want my life to be better. Yes, yes, yes. And like, you know, once you get to a certain part, you know, you, know, you either have to keep going or admit that all those small agreements were incorrect. And that's not always the case. I mean, like, you, you can admit that there is a problem, but you can disagree with the solution. Right. Uh, but he, he has such a strong personality, like the narrator has almost none. But 
and Tyler has such a strong personality that people just keep agreeing and just keep nodding. And once you've agreed to uh, that there is a problem and that you like the solutions he's presenting, and once he tells you you have no name, you have no identity, you now serve a larger purpose, like you, you just keep nodding and keep going and you don't have to think about it anymore. And as a teenager reading and watching this, you kind of fu- keep nodding Nod. along and keep going with it. Like... Chuck Palahniuk, the author, mentions uh, in an interview I saw with him that people were upset that Tyler died at the end, that they wanted to copyright really? Tyler Durden away from him and write their own sequel where Tyler Durden lives and continues Project Mayhem. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Because he is a cult leader and people want to keep following the leader. <laughs> and it also shows the kind of people that fall, that can fall into these uh, cult-like groups not always a religion it's it's safe it's a philosophy and it, all these men are totally alone there are no human connections like these men have abandoned their lives and gone to live in a like a dirty apart uh, dirty house. house in the <laughs> yeah. middle of nowhere given up their jobs like all they do all day is boil rice or make soap or clean the house no phone calls home, no mentions of kids they have to look after, no mentions of like missing persons reports or anything like that. And everywhere he goes, he sees bruised eyes and smashed noses and nods of like, you know, hey, yes, hello, sir, yes, kind sir. of thing. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to be stupid to fall into a cult. You just have no. to be at the right point in your life to want to change. And yeah. it's whoever is there to to light that fire in you that'll get you Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it's very seductive to a lot of people to feel like they're giving their lives to a cause in some way. Oh, yeah. Um, And that's also providing all of the Project Mayhem folks with a sense of community. They have a purpose. Mm -hmm. They're this secret club that, you know, the other people don't know about. But if you're walking around and you see someone with a broken nose and they give you a wink, like, you you know know that you're part of the same group. And that can be really enticing if you're caught at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. It is amazing to see the community that's been built around kind of Project Mayhem and and Tyler's kind of world he's created. I am kind of curious what your guys' thoughts are on what what do you think was the trigger to bring Tyler into the the narrative? What do you think was the trigger, Erin? Oh, I, I, I go back and forth on this. So I don't know if the insomnia was part of him kind of having somewhat hallucinations because if you're not getting enough sleep, you do actually start to hallucinate at one point. So I don't know if it started out as like a manifestation of a hallucination and then it actually was a, some sort of psychosis underneath that manifested into that later once he started to really like dive into it. Or if it was like they don't really explain much in the background of like what's his life going – like what's going on with his life? Like is he in financial crisis? Did he have a breakup? Like there's a lot of triggers that could have happened, but they don't really discuss a lot of it, but they hint at a lot of weird things in his past. So I'm curious if like – I don't know. It's hard to pin down. And I'm curious what you guys think. Something that is interesting that I didn't catch the first time like when I was younger, but now reading and watching as an adult – is both the book and the movie say that this is a story of needing Marla. Mm -hmm. And so there are lots of little things that are probably contributing to us getting to this point, but she completely turns his life upside down. And she introduces this level of chaos into his life that he didn't have before. And even still, you know, when we think of Fight Club, we think of Tyler Durden, we think of 
you know, these secret fights in basements, but in both the book and the movie, they explicitly say that it's about the story of him meeting Marla. That's a really good point. Yeah, because none of this crazy stuff really starts to take foothold until she starts coming to the support group meetings with him. And then they have kind of a head of talking out like, you get this night and I get this night. And that's kind of where it all goes from there. Well, just like, quote unquote, meeting Tyler, uh, kind of like disrupts <clears throat> his uh, his life and, you know, changes it, you know, for the different, I will say <laughs> that uh, meeting Marla also changes it for the different because he had found a solution to a problem that worked well enough for him. Mm-hmm. And then she ruined everything. everything. <laughs> it's a tourist. By just being there. She didn't do anything to him. She didn't approach her talk to him. She just showed up. Yeah. But the first place she shows up to is a men's testicular cancer support group, which she clearly has no business being. (laughs) Unless she was a trans person who didn't get bottom surgery, uh, which the movie and the book do not hint at in any way, shape or form. No business being there. And yet, but uh, besides the narrator, none of the men say anything. They just like welcome her in the group and say, hi, you're here. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. For all they know, she could be like a survivor of like a spouse or a partner or a family member who died of testicular cancer. Like they don't know. Mm -hmm. It's not really in your place to judge unless they're causing issues in the group. Right. But there are also separate support groups for people in those positions. So it is interesting that nobody ever questions or does anything about her being there. I would think that it would make people really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. yeah probably yeah it could disrupt the support group because you're, you're the re- group was called remaining men together yeah and here's a woman <laughs> yeah um and even though the movie is more about masculinity the book does touch on that and so having a a feminine aspect invade a masculine space can be disruptive in some way you know um as much as women uh and new uh speech talks about like you know safe spaces men deserve their safe space too especially Absolutely. uh these emotion emotionally vulnerable men um mm-hmm. who need the space to realize their um their own place in the world now that a visual symbol of their masculinity has been removed yeah and i think that kind of ties back into the whole you know today's kind of incel discussion where Mm-hmm. <laughs> the whole conversation around that is like, oh, we're being stripped of our masculinity and we have to take that back. We have to take control of that. And that, again, is like a terrifying justification for doing literally anything to rationalize it that way. It's it's amazing. It's <sighs> yeah, it, I like I can't even wrap my head around it. Um, mm-hmm. I am curious what your guys' thoughts are on the fact that um, the author is gay, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm wondering if there's any sort of correlation of like him writing about toxic masculinity or, you know, men having a boys club. Like, I'm curious if, if you feel like that kind of tied into this at all. Well, it's always dangerous territory to guess how much of how much an author puts themselves in the book as far as especially when it comes to philosophies or attitudes, mm-hmm. because there are a lot of aspects of Chuck Pal- uh, Palahniuk's life that he does put in his books, and he admits it. Yeah. Uh, 
like uh, when it comes to Fight Club, he says he got the idea because he got into a fight and the next day no one was asking him about it. <laughs> uh, and he used to work in hospice care. So he used to drive people to support groups and spent a lot of time in support groups that he, um, outside of being an escort, had no business being at. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got a lot of friends and like a lot of places of work and they tell him about all these industry secrets that he's put into the book as well. Mm-hmm. Um So it's easy to say, oh, yeah, the narrator is Chuck Palahniuk and he has all these thoughts. And so he is secretly, you know, a bad person or he thinks this way or he thinks that thing. Yeah. But, I mean, people do create characters to kind of like flesh out different areas that they want to think about without necessarily agreeing with them. So it's kind of like you have to like (laughs) decide for yourself how much uh, this represents a particular person or not. Yeah. Yeah, Kendall, what are your thoughts? Well, he's also highly skilled at writing really complex characters that I imagine are probably difficult for him to relate to. Yeah. Like if you, you know, look across his works, the c- characters or like prominent people featured in the books are all different people from all different walks of life, all different experiences. And so I imagine that there's again, yeah, I don't want to try to assume what his thought process was, but I I could believe that he finds it fun to try to pick someone who's very different from himself and write them in a way that feels relatable, even if maybe no no one or none of us could relate to their experience. But I also did read, I think it was an interview that he did. He, he was just talking about how he wrote the short story of Fight Club just as like a writing exercise mm. to like fill an afternoon. But then yeah, it was chapter did, six. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Oh <laughs> my gosh. He did like talk about how um, he was seeing a lot of these stories of women having these groups, like these secret clubs, like he was talking about um, Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood and like Joy yeah. Luck Club and all of these groups mm-hmm. where women could come together. But he wasn't really seeing that for men. Mm-hmm. And this feels like a pretty obvious setting to create mm-hmm. something like that that would be believable as like a men's club that also kind of makes me un- uncomfortable that okay well we need a boys club and what would all boys want to do beat the shit out of each other <laughs> like that's i mean i i'm not gonna lie i've had that feeling of wanting to beat the shit out of somebody before but it's like normally civilized people don't do that um but yeah that is kind of a scary thing to think about that is like oh yeah well, it's a boys club so what else are they gonna do beat each other up and then not tell anybody about it, but have our little boys club. And it's like, oh. <laughs> well, it's kind of compared to the first boys club that our narrator goes to, which is the remaining men together uh, testicular cancer group. Mm-hmm. And they don't beat the shit out of each other. They yeah. hold each other and cry and, and cry. talk about their feelings. <laughs> yeah. And that works for the narrator at first. He's able to sleep. He's able to um, connect to other people. Granted, it's a false connection. Because he doesn't talk to these people outside of the group, he doesn't share his real name, mm-hmm. so he isn't able to find to. It isn't able to be a long term solution for him, even though he does it for two years. However, it worked just as well as Fight Club did for him. Yeah, it's it is kind of like back to back of like one is a much more compassionate and like emotionally freeing in that sense, but then there is emotionally freeing on a more kind of primal level. Mm-hmm. And to see how you can have both of these scenarios kind of running at the same time. And the same thing with like Bob is one of the people in the support groups and he ends up going and joining um, Fight Club and Project Mayhem. And, you know, the way that they describe him is he gets kind of 
emasculated a little bit where because he he was a uh, steroid user and then ended up having um what was it he had to, ended up taking estrogen to help out with his system and then he had well he, was, he has his bitch tits is what Bob yeah. has so. his he had stick it to just blah 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 testicular cancers so they were giving him testosterone but he was given too much testosterone so his body up to the estrogen and that's oh, how he developed, okay got it as they say bitch tits bitch tits <laughs> yeah so it's interesting to see you paint the picture of this guy this which i try not to go into the movie but it's meatloaf and it's amazing uh but <laughs> <laughs> perfect casting uh, it's perfect oh, yeah. casting uh but yeah i mean you've got this really big dude who used to be a bodybuilder and he has what they have coined in the book is bitch tits it's bob has bitch tits and it's interesting to see how, you know, that is kind of a demasculating thing, but then he also joins Fight Club and like gets the sense of power back in a different aspect. And it's just interesting to see that dynamic kind of play up against itself in, in two very different ways. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. Well, it's like I, I mentioned how like it's kind of like played against the the ultraviolent Fight Club is kind of played against the ultra compassionate cancer survival group in the beginning mm -hmm. um and how the violence takes over the narrator's life but at the end in the book at least it's the survive it's the support groups that save him mm -hmm. the people from the support group come and offer him compassion mm -hmm. and that's what saves him so yeah. in the end compassion will overcome toxic masculinity <laughs> yes in a really roundabout way we got there yes <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, any final thoughts on the book before I feel like we can kind of transition into the movie because I've been dying to talk about it. Yes. Uh, one thing I want to bring thing. up yes. is uh, they talk about destruction a lot and how he mm -hmm. wants to destroy beautiful things, especially faces. Mm -hmm. Like there's angel face. Angel face. He's, yeah. And uh, we'll get into the movie version of these events, but in the book, he just shows up. He's a brand new person. He's got a beautiful face. Uh, the narrator, I think, says, you know, uh, put him in a dress and he'd be a woman kind of thing. That's how pretty he is. And he just beats the ever-loving fuck oh, out of him. He almost kills him. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he the way he describes it, and I heard it this afternoon when I was um, listening to the audiobook. he says there's this form of sleeper hold that you can put someone in where they stay conscious. And he talks about doing it to this to the angel face and then using his knuckles to just beat his face in until his teeth were coming through his cheek. Uh, yeah. And in the book basically since fight number one the narrator has had a, a wound in his cheek a hole in his cheek yeah yeah um, and at one point when he's like in his ultra destructive phase he goes to a fight club and signs up for every fight and by the third fight it's described as there's this sleeper hold you can put someone in where they stay conscious and he says the third guy knows what he wants and puts him in that hold and then beats his face in until his teeth come through his cheek and that hole becomes wider to, mm -hmm. until it reaches his mouth. And so now he has this lopsided jeering smile on his face the whole time now. Yeah. And then at the end, after he's saved by the support group and he's in a mental hospital, we can assume he describes it as heaven, but clearly it's a mental yeah. hospital. Yeah. He mentions that the gunshot wound he gave himself put a hole in the other side of his cheek that met his mouth. And so now from cheek to cheek he has this leering grin yeah. and it struck me as one you've totally destroyed your face yeah. no one can look at you and never think you're normal again mm -hmm. but also it's very joker like i was gonna say yeah. like you know i got these scars like that's what it feels like yeah yeah seriously oh but my God. just how like the book as we mentioned it's like 
to whoever reads it and as you get older it becomes less humor and more horror mm-hmm. um that this man has done horrible things and he has now a horrible face but he's smiling permanently forever yeah. now oh my god julia chilling think of that yeah. oh my god that's so good uh kendall any final thoughts before we move along <laughs> i think no i think that we should end on that one that's, <laughs> that's a great way to wrap up the book Beautiful. oh my god yes well nailed it julie a plus okay Yay. we're rolling along so second section we're gonna talk about the movie so kendall mm. if you could give us a quick little ad- uh blah, 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 a quick synopsis of the movie please sure so um let's see i also wrote a little <gasps> synopsis oh my god two I for mean, two yes. I, I feel like julie probably covered it better and since they are quite similar yeah uh, this will just be sort of redundant but no i love it bring it so fight club at its core is the story of a dull unnamed car recall specialist with severe insomnia who spends his time traveling for work and buying ikea furniture After a failed attempt to get a prescription for sleeping pills from his doctor, the narrator discovers that the only way he can fall asleep is by attending support groups for people with terminal illnesses, which he pretends to have. At one of these groups, he meets a woman named Marla Singer, who also attends these support groups under false pretenses. Around the same time, the narrator meets a brash and charismatic soap salesman named Tyler Durden, and his life is thrown into absolute chaos after a night of drinking, when Tyler turns to the narrator and says, I want you to hit me as hard as you can. <laughs> I love it. That's sure, great. Just throw the most popular quote. In I, I, <laughs> we have to. Come on. Someone yes. had to say it. Absolutely. Well, that's you guys nailed it. Oh, my God. I'm going to have to start up in my game with everybody else now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. New standards. Oh, my God. I love it. Well, let's let's break that down. I'll, I'll be picking on you again, Kendall, like from the film side what are your kind of initial thoughts? Like what drives you to this story? I, I think from what it sounds like all three of us saw the movie first. So kind of what drew you in? For me, it was the imagery and the use of color. Mm-hmm. Um, I I did like the book better, but I do think that it can be really challenging for a movie to be able to sort of visually portray the emotion that it wants you to feel during a yeah. scene. And yeah, I think just the use of color and the use of symmetry in this movie is pretty spectacular. Like, you know, we meet the narrator, his apartment is gray, everything in it is gray, he's wearing gray, he hasn't slept, so he's gray. Like, mm-hmm. he's just the dullest person ever mm-hmm. that you could that you could ever meet. You know, they like do a really good job of making sure that you know that. And then you meet Tyler and he's wearing red. He's got this red jacket. He's got really these red bright. tinted glasses. Yeah. He drives a red convertible. Like everything about him is very bright and in your face mm-hmm. and completely contrasting with everything we've known about the narrator. And they both stay that way throughout the film. Like I was interested to see if as time went on, the narrator's clothing started to change, but and he, it doesn't. he stayed in gray. Like there were mm-hmm. a few times when he had like red pajama pants or something, but for the most part, he, he kept the same colors and same with Tyler. He mm-hmm. was always wearing reds and oranges, these very bright colors. And I mean, I think it's kind of obvious, but, you know, red, the color of blood, violence, like mm-hmm. Tyler is introducing violence into the narrator's life. Yeah. And I think that this movie just did a really interesting job of sort of subtly, constantly reminding us of how we were supposed to feel about these two characters. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I'm glad mm-hmm. you brought that up because that actually made me think 
I had a thought that Julie and I, I like Julie and I rewatched the movie together recently. So we were like talking through the whole thing. We're like, oh my God, I didn't even know that. But um, part of that kind of, especially the aesthetic of Tyler, who is played by Brad Pitt, which I think this is probably one of my all time favorite movies with Brad Pitt in it. It's just such a good character. And it like, he, he does like the manic, but like silent manic like attitude so well it's like he's like super super calm and chill and then he just like flips a switch and you're like you are a bad shit it's so good but his clothing style is so interesting of a choice because he talks about how like oh rich people are you know we need to like tear it all down and start from scratch and money doesn't mean anything and he has this like really very cynical idea of just like what's the word I'm trying to think of where it's just like the hypocrisy of people just you just make more money and your life will be better it's like it's just stuff but then his outfits are very tailored and very like fashionable fashionable thank you I was like what am I trying to say but yeah it's like it looks very fashionable and looks like trendy and things that you would kind of expect to see on richer people who are trying to make a statement with their clothes because they're designer or something like that so I thought that was a really interesting choice where it's a very weird juxtaposition of how he thinks of people with money and then how he pre- presents himself. And I think it escalates further into the movie. Like it's very crisp and he has like really, it's just, it's like the brand of himself is just counterdicts everything about what he says throughout the entire movie, which I thought was very fascinating. Mm-hmm. And it does a strong brand. He has a yeah. very strong brand for yeah. sure. Well, it's like uh, Kendall earlier in the book, you mentioned the word how Tyler Durden is seductive. And I oh, yeah. think they couldn't have picked any better casting for that than Brad Pitt, oh, um, especially counterplaying um, Edward Norton as the narrator. Now, Edward Norton is a very handsome man in his own right. However, he is very good at being dressed down as like an everyday man. Whereas Brad Pitt, this was like, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. This was his prime as like sex symbol, a big movie star guy. Uh, And so throwing him in there, he is very seductive. He is very glamorous, especially in the tailored, fashionable clothing that he wears. Later on, when the narrator, you know, discovers that he and Tyler are the same person, Tyler goes, yeah, I look how you want to look. I fuck how you want to fuck. And whereas in the uh, not to, well, I guess compare a little bit in the book, the narrator mentions how he and Tyler are starting to look like twins, that their faces have taken so much damage that they no longer know, have lost the memory of where their skin is supposed to be on their faces. They're both becoming hideous as the book goes on, whereas Tyler just, you know, despite getting his face speed in, despite all the trouble he's doing, he is still Brad Pitt. He is Mm -hmm. still a beautiful man even when he shaves his head like a space monkey it's not just like you know oh i'd put a razor to a blah it looks stylized somehow yeah Yeah. (laughs) Uh, and he's he's wearing brown loafers and a fur coat we never see him in like you know the plain back black shirt plain black pants heavy work boots style Mm -hmm. that he has the space monkeys in Mm -hmm. he's always the beautifully dressed very glamorous very beautiful brad pitt i know Uh, and I think that's kind of why a lot of people, especially younger people when they're watching it, identify more with the Tyler Durden philosophy because sure, he's bad and doing bad things, but isn't he also kind of badass? Mm -hmm. Don't you want to be Tyler Durden? (laughs) Don't you want to look how he looks and fuck how he fucks and, you know, get away with the shit he's getting away with? (laughs) Mm -hmm. When he's like the embodiment of when you don't have any inhibitions, 
right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. he says, I do all the things that you yourself can't do, which is, I think is kind of a fantasy that everybody has. Like, what if I could just be somebody else and and have no consequences, you know? And that that's like the embodiment of what Tyler is. And of course, when you put a beautiful face to a beautiful character like that, like Brad Pitt is gorgeous to look at and you're like, it's very intoxicating to see that character. And obviously like fight club scenes, he doesn't have a shirt on. There's no shirts allowed. There's no belts allowed. It's, you know, like they have all these rules, but he's like, all these people are like insanely fit. Not all of them, but the ones they highlight. So it's like, it is very seductive. And they they did a a really good job of portraying how easy it is to slip into something when you're just looking at the kind of exterior and how nice it is to look at that. You don't really question what's underneath. And it's so well put together. (laughs) I love it. Um, Gosh, I had another question and I lost it. (laughs) Mm. Aaron, what do you think of Marla? (gasps) I'm so glad you asked Julie. Uh, I am in love with Helena Bottom Carter, who plays Marla. Um, this is, I think, I feel like I always joke that everything I see her in just feels like it's Tim Burton film, even if it's not a Tim Burton film. Because um, she has that aesthetic, but this is, I mean, she does kind of have a Tim Burton aesthetic. Her hair is kind of crazy, and she's got kind of a wacky wardrobe, which I think is just her. She seems to have wacky wardrobe no matter what she's in. But I think that, for me, I enjoy her character in the movie far more than I do in the book. There's a lot more character and personality there. And I feel like she's not just kind of an insert this character here to do the thing and then take her out and forget about her. And I don't know if that's just because they kind of put more emphasis on her character through the writing of the screen adaptation, or if because of who they casted, it did kind of, help fill that void but I felt like the character in the book was kind of bland in comparison and I I I adored her in the movie well what do you make of the difference in that the book Marla has the kiss scar on her uh hand but in the movie she doesn't yeah good questions Julie um yeah, it is it is interesting that she doesn't seem to get sucked into Project Mayhem like it is kind of alluded to in the book. Um and I don't I'm curious of why that decision was made. I wonder if it was to have Marla be like as kind of destructive as she is in a way. She kind of just bulldozes her way through everything. She steals stuff out of like the laundromat and then goes and sells them across the street and it's like not her clothes. Um like she does a lot of kind of chaotic neutral things um but i feel like because she doesn't really get sucked into tyler's world as much what like well she doesn't know that that's not really tyler but in his in the narrator's perspective i feel like she is almost considered a stabilizer at that point because she's one of the few things that doesn't get involved in project mayhem and she thinks that you know, she's with Edward Norton's character, who she thinks is Tyler. But it, it's interesting that they, they. I feel like it, it does make her more of a grounding agent in the story. I don't know if you guys have thoughts on that. I agree. I find it really interesting that in the book, she has the kiss burn on her mm-hmm. hand, um, but not in the movie. But I do think that in both the book and the movie, there are a lot of instances where it's sort of hinted at similarities between Marla and Tyler. And it seems like 
like I know they're not the same person, but they kind of could be. Like there, totally. are, there are definitely things that are said that it's the it's something that's said about Tyler and it's something that's said about Marla at the same time. And so it feels like there is sort of some of Tyler in her. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I actually really like about the movie. This is kind of going back to the imagery. This is one of my favorite endings of any movie ever. And yeah. in the final scene when they're standing there and they're watching the buildings explode and they're this sort of mirror image of each other. You have the narrator and you have Marla. And because of the previous situations the narrator was in, like he's not wearing any pants, but he's wearing this long coat. So it looks like they're wearing the same outfit. Like they're both wearing these tube socks. It looks like they're both wearing black dresses. They look (laughs) like they're mirror images. And so I think Marla's really interesting because she does seem to be more prominent in the movie than in the book. But I do think that she's sort of subtly tied to both of them throughout Mm -hmm. the entire story oh yeah no Mm -hmm. i I didn't even think of that ending scene that's totally true i love that yeah that ending scene is god it's so good so good (laughs) i also think it's uh to polarize the relationship more in in the movie as opposed to the book because uh in, in the book, that uh, the fact that she has a kiss scar and he doesn't know where it came from, although he knows that Tyler gave it to her, that implies that Tyler and Marla are interacting outside of sex. Right. Whereas in the movie, uh, as the uh, narrator puts it, outside of their humping, Tyler and Marla are never in the same room together. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, when they're having sex, that's their only interaction. Outside of that, it's her and the narrator. And it's a very difficult relationship because he doesn't realize that he's the one having sex All with her. All the same thing, yeah. <laughs> and just like with her disrupting his support, groups, his support groups, he's now upset with her for disrupting his new home life with Tyler. And so all he fe- all the narrator in this polarized relationship can feel towards her is rage and hatred and mm-hmm. upset that she's not the one having sex with him, <laughs> even though she is. Yeah. <laughs> So I I think that um, her lack of kiss scar helps to separate her and Tyler more. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas in the book, it kind of, as you said, brings them closer together. Mm -hmm. And I think makes the movie have a more incel look into that relationship between the narrator and Marla. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I I think it's like looking again at Marla's relationship with Tyler versus the narrator looking at their relationship. It's interesting that he doesn't ever seem to get angry at Tyler until towards the very end when he starts to actually talk about causing harm to Marla, right, in the movie. It just, it's interesting that that's like his first instinct is not to be like, Tyler, what are you doing? Why are you with her? You shouldn't be with her. I'm angry at you for deciding to be with her. He's always directing it at her. So I wonder if it's like a subconscious thing where it's like, it's him making these choices, even though he doesn't know it's him making these choices. So then he's angry at Marla, but it's really like, I don't know. It's like crazy to think about the redirect of why it's not Tyler. He's focusing his frustration and anger on. It's always been Marla. And I'm curious if you guys have thoughts on that. Well, in the, in the book, when the narrator and Tyler, when the narrator discovers that Tyler and Marla are having sex for the first time and they're talking about it, the narrator talks about experiencing jealousy I think but the way that it's written he's not jealous of Tyler for sleeping with Marla he's jealous of Marla for being close with Tyler right and so 
that they kind of flipped that in the movie a little bit where it seems like he's more sort of pining after her mm-hmm. but in the book it very much comes across as him being mad that she is taking away the time that he is spending with Tyler right and that's the same kind of reaction when she starts joining the support groups like you're a tourist like you why are you here you're ruining a good thing for me and that's kind of the trajectory for everything that she's involved in even though you know at the end we realize that she was involved with him the whole time but I just thought that was so such an interesting progression of him never really pointing the finger at Tyler until it's basically pushed into his face because he realizes he is Tyler. But yeah, it's it's so well put together. And also Helena Bottom Carter is just like chef's kiss. I can't <laughs> like I, 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 I it's very biased because I saw the film first, but it's like I cannot picture anybody else being that character no (laughs) she i've tried (laughs) yeah Yeah, she brings a lot to her because in the book marla is uh for lack of a better description a simple character not to say she's stupid but she just has very simple desires very simple ways of dealing with things like you know oh my new boyfriend has as like dissociative identity disorder great i had this ex-boyfriend who like was into cross-dressing same thing (laughs) yeah no just like no depth to that reaction at all um like all this like talk of her trying to hit bottom but no descriptions of like really why i mean they kind of go into her backstory a little bit but more of kind of like an explanation as opposed to a analyzation yeah. of her character um which has a different feel to it um we don't because we understand but we don't identify with marla at all right. whereas in the movie you learn less about her background but helena bonham carter's uh facial expressions you can connect to her that way yeah and uh, she is brilliant at giving away all those little subtle hints that the narrator isn't acting towards her the way she thinks he should mm-hmm. uh and her 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 facial expressions when he's like you know tyler's not here tyler's gone tyler's gone away and uh, later on when he's like has her in the restaurants and talking to her and she's like you know listen I like you. You're like, you know, you're you're smart, you're sexy, you're like you're terrific in bed. But yeah. you have deep emotional issues. <laughs> and it's like, yes. And like she did not <laughs> have this thought in the book at all. We're like, you need help and yeah. I should stay away from you until you get that help. She's just like, No, I'm along for the ride. Kind yeah. Of thing. Which goes back to like where she's got Tyler's kiss on the back of her hand. It's like obviously mm-hmm. she didn't really like she never got to the point of being like, I need to distance myself from you. She she kept going further in, mm-hmm. um, which is a very different dynamic than yeah, what I, they portrayed in the movie. I get the sense that if movie Marla had been put in that situation, she would not have a let it go no, that far. Or no. if it had, like if he kissed her hand and then they threw it on after it was resolved, she'd have been like, what the fuck are you yeah, doing? Like, I would have attacked him. Yeah, yeah, she would beat the shit out of him and left. Um, yeah, it feels like this Marla has a stronger sense of self. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And her character, too, is so fascinating because, you know, the whole way that she gets introduced to Tyler is she calls up the narrator and says, you know, like, oh, I took too many pills. And I don't think it's a true suicide attempt. I think it's just like a it's like a what what's the word she, she uses? It's like just a call for more help. Like a cry for help. Yeah, yeah. More like a cry yeah. for help kind of situation. And she just like is kind of high and ranting about what it would feel like to die slash what it would feel like from his side to listen to someone die. And it's like, that's how they get introduced. And her characters, it just kind of has like this devil may care attitude where, you know, she 
um, she steals things and sells them. And then she's going to support groups, doesn't care what people think of her. She's, you know, she's with this crazy, this kind of crazy guy who's like hot and cold and she can't figure out what's going on with him. And then there's scenes like when she finally figures out that he didn't realize that he was Tyler in the restaurant scene. She goes and walks in the middle of the street and is just like, there's cars flying around. I mean, she just like doesn't care. And I'm I'm curious, like they never really explain why her kind of personality is that way. Like what you were saying in the book, like Julie, or what you were saying, Julie, about the book was they kind of give some of a backstory to her, but they, they give even less in the movie. So I'm curious, like, why is she like that? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I, I, I need to know. <laughs> and we will probably never get an answer, but. Yeah, good thought. Well, I have an idea, but uh, I feel like it's been you and me a lot. So, Kendall, what do you think? Ah, oh, yeah. No, no, it's great. I love hearing your conversation. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I think she's the most interesting character in the story by far. Yeah, and I think it's always really interesting to see how women are portrayed and interacted with in male-centric media. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because, like, to me, Marla is Tyler, right? She's like. Tyler for women mm-hmm. but it's it's not a positive thing like Tyler does all the same things that she does he's erratic he's flamboyant he's over the top he says absurd things and he's this like hero who gets elevated to cult status right like mm-hmm. but Marla she does all the same stuff and she's just this out of control woman you know mm-hmm. and so it's interesting to see because like their actions are practically identical but the mm-hmm. way that she's received both in the movie and I also think by people watching the movie it's sort of designed to make you feel very differently about her than about Tyler yeah I agree I think especially in the scenes where you've got like Tyler on one side of the of like he's like downstairs or on one side of the room out of view of Marla and then Marla's on the other side and they're both talking to the narrator at the same time it always seems like Tyler is the one that's much more in control and calm. And she seems kind of manic and like pushy and is kind of coming unhinged. So like that dynamic, they show it side by side. Mm-hmm. And I love that you pointed that out. I didn't even think of that until just now. <laughs> well, Erin, as you said that you you would, uh, you wanted to know what the triggering incident was for yes! Tyler showing up, but we'll never know. I think the movie's approach of not explaining Marla's past is also kind of like, you know, I wish we knew what got her to this point, but we'll never know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because they take out the explanation, you can identify with her more because you true. create the story in your head now. And you will always think of something that makes you sadder for a person or, you know, a horrible thing happened in their past. Oh, whatever explanation it is, it's never as horrible as what you think it is. It's never as good as what you think it is. Yeah. Whenever you can let audiences draw their own conclusions or create their own story mm-hmm. i think is for the better which is why i said in the book it felt like marla's past was more of an explanation as opposed to a way to identify with her character yeah great point and so i think they just took that away so that we could identify with her more by creating her own story in our heads yeah because there obviously seems to be trauma there because it's like mm-hmm. what's the quote where she's like i haven't <laughs> it's like the worst quote but it makes me laugh every day I'm like i haven't been fucked that good since grade school <laughs> i have so many questions uh funny story the original line of the book is um i want to have your abortion yeah god fox studios hated that so david fincher put in the i haven't been fucked like that since grade school and the studio begged him to put the original line back in he said no (laughs) he's like this is what you get 
Yep. Oh my this is what happens when I have to switch my words. Oh the epitome of it would always be worse. <laughs> I mean, it's so horrible when you sit there like, oh, my God, did you just literally say that? Like, it's awful, but it's like it's so ridiculous. You're like, oh, my God. Like, how do you unpack that? Like, yeah. And then Brad oh Pitt's God. facial expression when she says that was kind of like, what? Because <laughs> it's absurd. You're like, uh-huh. do you understand what you just said? Like, that's so messed up on so many levels. Uh, yeah. And I mean, her her kind of one liners, which I know, granted, are are mostly written by the, like you know in the book but it, there's the way she delivers it is just so good like you know she has the whole conversation about how like present day cinderella is condoms right so it's like you can try it on and you can be with somebody for a night and then you take it off and you walk away like nothing happened it's like it's modern day cinderella and it's like the most ridiculous things that are like they don't make any sense in the moment, let alone out of context, but you just like drop that stuff. And it's like, she delivers it so well. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Her character is great. I keep thinking of things as I'm talking and then I keep forgetting them. So we're just, <laughs> we're just going with it. Um, Do we just want to jump into comparisons? I feel like, you we're, know, already been yeah, doing that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're already there. So yeah, let's yeah. jump in. So yeah. I was going to say, what do you guys think about the differences in the book and the movie of uh, Tyler's introduction? Oh yeah. Good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. yeah, what are your thoughts? I feel like the introduction of Tyler in the book is kind of confusing. It yes. feels very out of context for the rest of everything, which maybe is the point. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think the way he was introduced in the movie, like it makes sense with the story and it's he's still able to be fully Tyler. But like, you know, the narrator is going to be on a plane. That makes sense. But then in the book talking about this whole like naked on a beach building something out of wood thing <laughs> is very odd um it's bizarre <laughs> and I, yeah i i got stuck on that when i was rereading the book because i had forgotten that that was how he was introduced and i i don't know julia i'd be interested to hear what you have to say it looks like maybe you have thoughts but i just <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me <laughs> I have all of the thoughts. Uh, <laughs> so I think in the book uh, that Tyler's introduction is kind of like a boiled down thesis, which is no matter if you're going for construction or destruction, completion or hitting bottom, perfection only lasts for a moment mm-hmm. um, because he's building a hand in the sand and it's only perfect when the sun is just right, oh, that's right above yeah. it. And then afterwards it, it looks weird. Um, so and he also mentions that he meets Tyler when he's sleeping on a beach, which yes, yes. love that. In the movie, it it is a perfect way to transition the power of the characters. Like Tyler doesn't become the main character; it's still the narrator, but Tyler now becomes the driving force mm-hmm. of the movie. It was a narrator. We're kind of going along with him with his little, you know, his clever ideas and you know his you know disillusionment with this. Uh, society he lives in and the boredom of his life and then here comes colorful tyler who acknowledges you're clever in a kind of like you know pat pat good boy kind of way um and then as with that pat pat good boy he takes the reins of the narrator's life and just drives it into the ground (laughs) Um, and it's just like you know a roller coaster from there uh i think in the book thesis in the movie taking over the reins of control yeah that those that's my thoughts a wonderful way to describe (laughs) it I still just I'm hung up on the beach thing. Like I think that that's the, that's the part. Like why would the narrator be on a beach as we know him as that's a person? True. 
Like, he seems like he would hate the beach. There's sand, it's hot, you know? Like, is that just a way that you can sleep in public and have it not be weird? Because I think you're right that <laughs> I think that's a really beautiful sort of, like, perfection lasts a moment. And I don't really know how you would do that differently elsewhere. But, like, I don't you know. Probably could. I'm, I'm stuck on this beach thing. <laughs> I think from, like, you know, a hoity-toity, like, English paper class, uh, like, thesis kind of way that – a beach is like an area of transition. Like you're going from land to water, horizon, you know, sun setting and rising kind of thing. And so the since that's our introduction to Tyler, again, the narrator is transitioning slowly into Tyler and that's where it begins, I think. I would buy that. I mean, I'll take it. <laughs> and I literally just thought of that. So it's not like, who, who knows? It could be totally wrong. I'll think Quick, of it. Quick, write a thesis later. on it. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's a really good point because I, I agree. I think I agree with you, Kendall. Like with the way that the the narrator's character has been described and portrayed throughout the entire book and the movie is it doesn't seem like he would be the kind of person to be like, I'm going to go to the beach. Like he doesn't seem like a person that would be found in that setting. So it is kind of interesting. It's like, how did you get there? Mm-hmm. Like, and I, but at the same time, I totally agree with you, Julia, where it's like you have this perfection moment. But it's like, I feel like that could have been addressed anywhere if you think hard enough about it you just have to imagine what how you would want that to look so why the beach why specifically there like what ties that in because it doesn't they never go back to that beach they never talk about beaches again after that that's like the only time um it is interesting he mentioned it was while sleeping so it could have been a dream that is true yeah that could have all just been in his head described as a very like ethereal sort of dreamy moment and Mm -hmm. in the movie when he meets tyler he wakes up uh-huh. But who knows? He plane. could be dreaming on the plane. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Ooh, good point. So maybe, yeah, maybe there is kind of a weird little kind of out of place moment because dreams are out of place. Like it makes sense in the moment, but then you start looking back on it, like, yeah, no, that doesn't make any sense in the context. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, since you mentioned it's the only time it happens, I think both in the book and the movie, it is our first clue that Tyler is not what he seems mm-hmm. um, like more, in, yeah. in the book it's since it's a dream like you know oh yeah you met someone in a dream clearly they're not real in the movie uh you know talking on the plane hey we have the exact same briefcase i know i love that <laughs> and I tyler's love reaction that. of like huh, yeah, yeah anyway yeah yeah uh-huh. sure <laughs> oh my god i know that scene i want to talk about that scene a little bit because that is i think that it's moments like those in the movie that just really cement how much I love the dynamic of Edward Norton and Brad Pitt, as well as just like the genius writing to put it all together. So it's like on both sides of the fence, you've got such amazing content and amazing actors to portray just crazy characters. And that, that scene where they meet each other on the plane is, you know, he, uh, Tyler Durden talks about the, the cards that are in the seats about like what to do in case of an emergency. And he talks about, you know, the complacency of, oh, well, the oxygen is to make you high so that you're not worried about the plane crashing. And like that, and it's such a calm conversation, but you start to really see like how kind of twisted (laughs) Tyler's character is. And that's like, that's the very first time you meet him. And I love, I love how they did that. And it's, oh, it's just so good. It's so good. I love it. But I did want to actually say like with the movie, technically, technically the plane is not the first time you meet tyler that is correct. technically correct technically yes it's Ooh, not. <laughs> trivia time yeah so uh in the movie 
they discuss how uh, Tyler is a um, what's what's the word where he's in the um, projectionist. He's a projectionist. Thank okay. you. Where he's putting all of the projections up for movies and he's actually splicing shots of porn into movies for like a split second so that people are like what did i just watch and before they can realize what they've seen it just it's moved on so it's like almost like this like crazy little flash on screen and you barely notice that it it happened but they actually do that with tyler in the i think they do it like four times in the Mm -hmm. beginning yep um where his body just flashes on screen for a split second and then just and it's all before you actually meet tyler and then once you actually see him in embodied those flashings stop it's it's so good yeah i love that i thought that was such a fantastic touch and it felt like a really good homage to chuck polinick because it's like kind of like a cheeky little wink you know like yeah it feels like a sort of visual representation of the way that he would try to write like Tyler's around. Tyler's here. You know, he's in the he background. Pops up. Mm-hmm. I also yeah. just realized, and Kendall, to draw to your point of Tyler and Marla kind of being the same thing, we see three in, f- three flashes of Tyler before um, the narrator joins the support groups. In fact, we see one flash in the support group before mm-hmm. um, he starts crying. And mm-hmm. after that, we don't see any more flashes of Tyler. And he says that about two years have gone by. Mm-hmm. But the first night Marla shows up, after the support group, and he sees her walking away, we get our last flash there of Tyler before we oh meet him in God. person. God, mm-hmm. mind blown! Yes, you're totally right. Oh, yeah, mm, it's so good. Yep. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, the movie is just so tight because, like, the the book is amazing writing, and there's so much good material to draw from. But I think that David Fincher did such a good job with embodying kind of the vibe and the character of the story and it's it's just beautifully put together and i i could just gush about that forever (laughs) gush it's time i i know well i was gonna actually i wanted to jump ahead a little bit and talk about the endings which are extremely different because we're we're in the comparison mod so like i already kind of kind of got vibes on which ending we preferred but overall like what are our thoughts on how dynamically different the endings are (laughs) like more different like they're just there couldn't be more different than how they turned out at all in any way yeah it's pretty wild so um for our listeners at home the ending of the book is well actually julie i'll have you describe the ending of the book i'm gonna pick on you (laughs) so uh the ending of the book uh tyler durden has essentially kidnapped the uh narrator to the top of a building and is talking about martyrdom essentially Mm -hmm. um but before he can do it, um, a bunch of the support groups, um, all the various support groups um, led by Marla, uh, have come to talk him down, essentially, to like, you know, come down, we can make it all all right, you know, we want you to live, all that kind of thing. Uh, and as the narrator's thinking about it, he realizes that Tyler's uh, concoction that he created to blow up the building is a variant that he knows does not work. And since he knows it doesn't work, that means Tyler knows it doesn't work. So did Tyler really want to die? Who knows? Anyway. um, Moving on. (laughs) He also ended up shooting himself, but in such a way that he lives. However, in the epilogue, he believes he is dead and that he is in heaven. But we've come to, we come to slowly realize that heaven is like a mental, a a psych ward. God is a therapist. Um, (laughs) who's trying to reinstill in him that he is a special snowflake and so is everyone else. So don't you realize all the horrible things you've done? Marla comes by to talk to him. Um, Does she? Actually, I don't know. 
He talks Ooh. about how if, if he were allowed to talk to Marla, mm. that he wouldn't hang up on her because there's this whole subplot of how Marla gets phone calls where there's no one on the other end of the line. Mm-hmm. But he also says that of all the like, you know, um, cleaning staff or uh, nursing staff that are there, they're all people with black eyes and smashed noses who, you know, give him a wink and a nod and say, we miss you, sir. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. ah, it continues beyond him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah. And then on the flip side, Kendall, I'm going to pick on you. How does it end in the movie? Yeah. It's it's pretty much completely different from that. Um, <laughs> we do yes. also end up back in the beginning where the narrator and Tyler are in this building having an argument, trying to figure out, you know, how to get rid of Tyler basically is the narrator's goal while they're waiting for the world to explode. Mm-hmm. They have three minutes before everything blows up. The narrator also goes through this process of figuring out how to get rid of Tyler. He realizes that if he kills himself, he can kill Tyler. Mm -hmm. And so he's able to sort of flip the power dynamic by saying, like, if I get rid of me, I get rid of you. And um, there's some, like, Project Mayhem people kind of milling around. And Marla shows up, but it's not with the support groups. Mm -hmm. It's Marla. She comes in. She's pissed. Like, she's yelling she's upset like she has things to say i mean they abducted her yes <laughs> like, yeah so very like very different vibe yeah. very different vibe and it's funny because this is like a very serious pivotal moment of the movie but the way that it's sort of presented it's all humorous it because is she it's comes ridiculous in, she's like she's got her speech ready she's gonna start telling him off and then she's like oh my god your face you know it's <laughs> like oh it's nothing it's fine yeah and then she takes Get what effectively gauze. looks like yeah, a little wad of toilet paper and just like puts it on his like giant bullet hole in the oh side god. of his face um <laughs> it's so messed up and julie's going yeah, to get some weird gauze. it's so <laughs> weird um but it feels right also for them yeah. like normally i hate when adaptations completely change up the ending it makes Mm -hmm. me really upset but I really liked this one because it felt like a good way to wrap up the movie story Mm -hmm. and then you know I've already talked about how obsessed I am with the ending with all the symmetry and they're standing there and they're watching everything burn and I know uh, he turns to her and he goes you met me at a very strange time in my life yeah and and then that's the understatement It's yeah, it's perfect. I and love then you've it. got the Pixies playing in the background, which I will never hear that song the same way again. It's yeah. so good. It's oh the my Fight god, Club song now. It is exactly. the Fight Club song, and it yeah. was the perfect song choice. Like it, yeah, everything about it just came together beautifully. Like it was just a phenomenal scene. Mm-hmm. And then, as you're sort of left with this, like, wow, what an amazing wrap up. Then we get our little porn splice right mm-hmm. at the end. Yeah, <laughs> just in case you've forgotten that it's all a joke. Here right, which I'm curious, if that porn splice is put in there, does that then imply that Tyler is actually not dead? Yes. Is he in control of the projection yeah. going on in the narrator's brain? Because that was a very movie ending. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? Like a very nice little bow wrapped on it, and then all of a sudden you get the, the <laughs> very- But I'm still here. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like that little reminder of like, oh, remember when we talked about how Tyler did this with mu- movie viewers? You're the movie viewer, baby. Yeah, it's it's genius. Like I, and and honestly, like it's interesting too because in the book, the ending is a lot more like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna stop you from doing something really bad and help you get better. Very different trajectory. Whereas the movie is like, even though in a way we think Tyler is dead or maybe he's not, it but you know Tyler is no longer in the scene. 
but it still happens anyway. Like all mm-hmm. these buildings, all these credit card company buildings are all demolished simultaneously, except for the one that they're standing in because he disabled that one bomb. But it's interesting that e- it, even though it's like a mass amount of destruction at the end, you have like this weirdly uplifting of like, oh, Tyler's gone. And look, all these buildings are on fire and collapsing in- before us. And but But he's with the girl. He got mm-hmm. the girl. It's like, it's such a weird combination of emotions where like he shot himself in the face he's currently bleeding out but he's got the girl he got rid of tyler but the buildings are still on fire like <laughs> there's a lot going but on the buildings on fire are the debt companies aaron and we all kind of want those to go away don't i we? mean yeah. then we all go back to zero yeah <laughs> no one wants to be yay they saved the debt companies Woo, credit card companies <laughs> represent yeah, yeah. uh yeah, which that also kind of makes me wonder, too, if some of the underlying tones of why Tyler came into the picture is because you're like, oh, we have to get rid of all the credit card debts. Like, so do you secretly maybe have credit card debt? And so, like, you used Tyler as a rationale for destroying all the credit card companies because you yourself had a substantial amount of debt. It's all about Ikea furniture. Yeah. In the book specifically, he mentions that his bank uh, account is constantly overdrawn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they don't really mention that as much in the movie, but- the focus is because I mean, when he goes to the police, um, Edward Norton's character goes to the police to try and stop Tyler, and the the main investigator is like, "Yeah, but why? Why these buildings? Like, why credit card companies?" And then they have to they they make a pretty big point of explaining what the significance of these buildings are, not just any buildings, but these ones specifically. And I don't think that they had that kind of a focus in the book. It was more of like just have massive destruction of high end property of high end things to kind of mess with the 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 kind of dynamics of rich versus poor but i yeah interesting choice but yeah that ending man god i i i'm with you kendall i think the ending in the movie i i loved it it was just it it just was such a stellar way to end such a wild ride and it was with such calm at the end even though it was kind of nuts the entire way through oh so good so good well, it's also like the end of the movie is the first time that the that Tyler listened to the narrator. Yeah, because mm-hmm. like like I said, from the moment they met, like actually to met together, Tyler's been in control of their relationship, and it isn't until the narrator has a gun in his hand that is pointing it at himself. And like he says, with why he goes to support groups when people think you're about to die, they really listen to you. Exactly. So it's only when he's standing there with the gun to his head that Tyler really listens to him and now the the reins are firmly back in the narrator's hands as mm-hmm. far as the driving of the story goes and yeah. that's what it took to do yeah it, and yeah. also like kudos to brad pitt for that scene i feel like <gasps> his response is what made that so impactful where like he's always in control right like he's mm-hmm. he knows it he's confident he knows that he controls the room mm-hmm. and then suddenly the narrator kind of flips this little switch, switches it around on him, and he just kind of leans back and he's like, oh, interesting. And then he kind of like sits forward like, oh, yeah. no, maybe I'm not actually in control. And that's the only time you ever see him do that. Yeah, that yeah, falter. He, yeah, He tries to keep the control. He goes, why are you pointing a gun at your head? Kind of like, uh-huh. Why are you doing yeah. this? And he goes, not my head, Tyler. Our head. And that's Our, when he goes, uh-huh. oh, and that's uh-huh. when he leans forward yeah. and he comes to stand in front of him like, okay, we're here. Mm-hmm having the greatest moment of our life and he's not missing it yeah Uh, Yeah. we don't really get that moment in the book no 
Yeah, I feel like it's just like a full speed ahead of like, I'm in control, I'm in control. And then all of a sudden it's like, hmm, not anymore, you're not, bam. And they're like, and we're done. We're, we're, we've moved on. And that just like kind of just stops dead in its tracks. Whereas this is, there's a lot more of a, like a, a visceral response to, oh my God, you can see the table being turned and it, it is really well executed by the two of them. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Yeah. yeah, the only other time we see Tyler Durden freak out is when the narrator shoots the van. He's like, whoa! Okay, we're whoa. now shooting at our imaginary friend uh-huh. near 400 pounds of nitroglycerin! Oh my god, I love that scene. Oh my god. That, oh, yeah, that, again, I keep coming back to, like, the casting! Brad Pitt is so good, and he he has this crazy aura around him with this character and again i was also thinking of the fights he's like i'm fucking lou who the fuck are you you like <laughs> yeah like that whole scene where they're in the bar and lou who owns the tavern is like you're not supposed to be here and then he starts beating the crap out of brad pitt and his like crazy maniacal laugh mm-hmm. and then he's like you don't know where i've been lou like it's the, it's crazy like it's such a good representation and i don't think you really get that kind of imagery like at least i didn't i didn't really get that kind of kind of character development when I was reading the book but it definitely helped that I'd seen the movie so I could fill that in it felt to me watching that that in that moment that is when Tyler becomes dangerous like yes throughout the whole time even when he's causing destruction it's still like he's clever he's witty like he's having a good time and so you know it's kind of fun still like even if you know it's bad Mm -hmm. but in that moment he is completely unhinged like he's like spitting blood all over this guy and it's it's, nuts it's it's a different tone for sure and that's Mm -hmm. when it feels like like oh this this guy is dangerous Mm -hmm. that's when tyler becomes full cult leader because even though like you know he's spraying blood on this guy um he gets what he wants like the guy like lets him continues to use the basement for his fight clubs. Mm-hmm. He's made the men in the fight club who are like, you know, tough guys who fight each other, like vomit out Ew, of like yeah. horror uh, mm-hmm. from what they're seeing here. Uh, but the way they lift him up from the grounds is very Christ-like. Yes. Um, when they put him down, they're all crowding around him. The narrator is standing nearby, but his face is in shadow. He's become another background character. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh, he puts a cigarette in his lips and someone just like lights a lighter, like without him even indicating anything. And without any like conversation about what Fight Club now is, he gives them all homework assignments. And they just go with it. And they yeah. just go with it. They all do it. Uh, yeah. Granted, the next scene is very funny as they do it. <laughs> but it's also terrifying when you think about the, the, how the dynamic of the club has now shifted from just mm-hmm. people coming to fight to now having a purpose beyond that. Mm-hmm. And now a, a leader. Yeah, because it, it was said that no one is at the center of Fight Club except for the two people fighting. Mm-hmm. Except now, Tyler Durden is the center of Fight Club. He's the focal point. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and it's crazy too because it's like this whole thing is happening with him and Lou, and nobody is trying to step in. Nobody's saying anything. It is dead quiet in that room except for the two of them, really. Mm-hmm. And that dynamic alone, it's like. Either it's out of fear, out of respect, or both, that they're not getting involved. Well, it's crazy. They do, actually, but um, the bodyguard yeah. wards them off with a gun, and Tyler Durden himself like throws his hand down and says, stay back, and specifically at the narrator, but since he's not there, he's doing it's it to, to the men. Yeah, yeah He's telling true. them to stay back, and they obey. Right, right. Like, you don't yeah. have to listen, right? You no. could have st- easily stepped in, like, no, I'm, I'm shutting this down. But mm-hmm. everybody is like, well... He said he can handle it, so here yeah. we are, and they just let it play out, and it's wild. It's a mm-hmm. wild turning point. On the ground, 
getting his face absolutely pummeled like mm-hmm. and at one point he's like begging you know but mm-hmm. he's still in control the entire time he's oh, in control yeah. of the entire room and mm-hmm. it's interesting to think about the position that Lou gets put in like I yeah. know that it's not about him but he's sort of like faced with this moment of like how far are you gonna let this go right you know? he was because, expecting him to just yeah. quit and he's like how are you still mentally here and uh-huh. like how have you not just like passed out or have like begged for me to stop and it's like he just kept going and going and th- there was no end to it right. that yeah. he thought was going to happen yeah the yeah. interaction begins with i'm fucking lou who the mm-hmm. fuck, fuck are, you? are you and ends with him retching and crying as he like runs up the stairs yeah yeah like that's a total flip thanks lou yeah, yeah. The like, exactly yeah <laughs> thanks lou <laughs> see you next week yeah (laughs) yeah it and i i think yeah i don't think i realized that but that's that really is the turning point for tyler because that is where you really start to see the creation of project um mayhem and also it's no longer just about the two people in the ring it's it's now expanding and it's uh, it's fascinating to see how that one event spearheaded that decision like i'm wondering if like in a way tyler was like waiting for kind of a pinnacle moment to to introduce that so it's like it makes him look almost godlike that he not only like survived that whole thing is still fully conscious and also got the upper hand and remained in control through that entire exchange but that he like waited for that moment to then be like inspirational basically to then turn his project into something more than just fight club and i'm curious if like if that's if you guys thought like is was he waiting for this moment or was it just like he's just winging it like i think he's winging it because in the book he didn't need like a moment to transition it was just he slowly incorporated the transition Mm -hmm. in in the movie they gave him a pivotal moment Mm -hmm. because i think it works for just like you know a movie narrative flow to have Mm -hmm. a transition like that uh but it also goes to show uh his his canniness and intelligence that he can take advantage of a situation so quickly super quick turnaround Mm -hmm. yeah and really really um like an analytical and very like strategic way of handling that situation instead of just saying okay back to fight clubs like we're taking this up a notch if you can't already tell what which, which is what i was doing we're now taking it up a notch so it is very strategic and i thought that was fascinating so good oh thanks lou you're the best, <laughs> you're the best. <laughs> see you next week it's so good oh my gosh well any final thoughts what are your favorite quotes Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a big question. That yes. is a big question. I mean, I do love I'm fucking Lou, who the fuck are you? Mm-hmm. It's pretty great. It just rolls off the tongue, don't you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh oh, what what's the quote? I should have it's just like this is my favorite quote, but I don't remember the quote. <laughs> uh what's the in in the very beginning of the book, um, when he starts going to the testicular cancer group. Um, he talks about how everybody's eyes are like wrapped in cellophane of tears. Shrink wrapped in tears. Yes. Oh, like they don't really, I mean, they say that in the movie, but it's just like the way that the book kind of prose that out. It's God, that's such a good line. And I've never, I, it's just like, it's such good imagery. Like it's amazing imagery in the book, but like, there's a ton of lines like that, like scattered throughout the entire thing. But that, I think that was one of my favorites. It's just the shrink wrapped. That's so 
it's so good. Yeah, and that because that was yeah in the book that's a Polynuk line for sure, and oh, that yeah. feels like totally his thing. Like he's oh, so yeah. good at doing that. Like I'm just gonna drop this like super visually descriptive one-liner on you Mm -hmm. and you know exactly what he wants you to think about everywhere Mm -hmm. in the book and i wish that i had written more down julie do you have favorites oh like (laughs) ten (laughs) thousand. fair enough fair enough i mean there's like the one you mentioned earlier which is i want you to hit me as hard as you can which is the fight club line if you say that people know what you're talking everybody knows but i think also uh, my favorite is people are always asking me if i know tyler durden yeah (laughs) yeah what does yeah. it mean to know Tyler Durden? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, but, I, and oh, go for it. Well, it's like they say that in the beginning, like that's like the opening line of the film. But also later on, when he meets up with uh, Bob after he started Fight Club and finds out Bob's in Fight Club, Bob's mm-hmm. talking about like, hey, do you know about this guy who started Fight Club? And he's like talking about how he's like so awesome and legendary and creepy. And he's like, do you know about Tyler Durden? And the narrator's face falls. Mm-hmm. Like here he was waiting for his, like, you know, his name. Uh, you know. Yeah, for well, like for his recognition as being yeah. a creator. Where he's Fight like, Club. oh, I but, know. Hey, do you know about Tyler Durden? It's like, oh, oh, yeah, it took a turn yeah. he wasn't expecting. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's just so ugh, it's tight. It's tight. The whole thing is so good, and there, it's just like I I now I'm like totally blanking on any other examples, which is driving me nuts because there's so many of them in the book. But also the whole section of when they're in the house and they find a room of all these diaries of like the, the, oh, yeah, the yeah, yeah, shut-in yeah. who uh-huh. lived in that house before them wrote all of these things from the perspective of body parts <laughs> jack and jane jack mm-hmm. and jane yeah i am jack's kidney <laughs> i am jack's medulla oblongata without me jack cannot regulate his heart rate <laughs> blah, 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 blah. It's like, yeah, i am jack's then- colon yeah i get cancer uh-huh. i kill jack i, I kill jack <laughs> yeah it was, it's a great narrative tool in the book and the movie because it's a way for the narrator to express his emotions without mm-hmm. connecting to them. Right. Like, I Absolutely. am Jack's, uh, ra- uh, you know, boiling rage. Boiling rage. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so, like, in the beginning, like, I am Julie's excitement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. Well, and also, it's like, you know, it, it almost kind of superimposes that he gives himself the identity of these diary entries where he becomes Jack because we still don't have a name for him. So a he lot kind of people puts do himself... refer to him. Yeah. As yeah. Jack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like it kind of identifies a name, even though that isn't his name that we know of. But he uses that as an identifier. Like, I am Jack's disgust. I am mm-hmm. Jack's, you know. Uh, there's it, it's spattered like once they find those diary entries it is spattered throughout the rest of the book and the movie and it's oh man i just want to like go back to edward norton can we just like appreciate the the god's gift that edward norton is in this movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah like his fight with himself and his boss i know yes. and in the parking lot too Unreal. where mm-hmm. it's all him it's incredible and i think again the visualization that the film can bring to the fact that he's doing this all by himself, you you can't like you can kind of get the imagery once that like once the penny drops at the end, we're like, oh my god, you are Tyler. You can start to be like, oh my god, so all of these things that were happening, it was just you in the room or you were sleeping or whatever. But to actually see himself beating himself up in the parking lot when it, it's supposed to be him and Tyler, or him like freaking out his boss and beating the crap out of himself in his office, or you know, literally, they, they start showing all these pieces where it should have been Tyler in the shot with him, and it's just him. And it's it's so chilling and so good. And 
oh man that cinematography it's <laughs> they did such a good job with that and edward norton like killed that role it was so yeah. good and this was like was this before or after american history x this was after right? after yes yeah. so he was just coming off of like that role which is mm-hmm. polar opposite of this role yeah it's just wild it's so good like i love him in this just ugh. Oh, I could just talk about that casting forever, which I mean, let's be real. That tends to be most of my drive with movies is like, oh, my God, this cast. Oh, my God, this cast. Uh-huh. It's so good. It's solid. One thing that I really like about the casting, too, that's just like a very brief little moment. So, like, you know, in addition to Meatloaf, Angel yeah. Face is yeah. Jared Leto. Right. Before so, he was really well known. Yeah. yeah. And so but he was still the the lead of 30 Seconds to Mars at this moment. Oh, because, was he? OK. Yeah. So there's it's this very very brief like moment where tyler is kind of going on one of his rants talking to all the like project mayhem boys about how they all thought they were going to grow up to be special but they can't and as he's walking past him he's talking about how they can't all be famous actors or rock stars and he (laughs) looks right at him when he says that which is perfect because like that's exactly what he was is he was just a rock star in that moment but yeah yeah same thing with meatloaf (laughs) <laughs> exactly but yeah we can't all be rock stars and Andrew for face. all those who are upset at Jared Leto uh, and <laughs> don't like him very much right now you can still watch the movie because like halfway through his own appearance he gets his face like kicked in yes. and he is ugly for the rest of it uh-huh. <laughs> it doesn't so even it's, okay. honestly, it's very cathartic yeah. it is well I mean honestly even before he gets his face bashed in it's such early stages of his career like I knew oh, yeah. who it was and it's still like it doesn't look like him. Like he doesn't look the way he does now. Mm-hmm. So it is interesting where it's like, if, if you didn't say anything, I would never have correlated the two. So it, you know, this is pre <laughs> current day, uh, <laughs> hot mess that he is. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. And then also just like meatloaf is again, like this, they, this wild random character that you would never expect to see him in. And it's, Oh my God, Bob. Yeah. His name is Robert Paulson. He did such a good job with that. And it's such a small character. Like he's barely in there, but it's a huge pivotal moment for their movement too. When, you know, Robert Paulson dies and then, you know, he becomes the new kind of face of the movement where it's like, his name is Robert Paulson and it's epic. It's, Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so good. Oh, guys. Did I mention this is so good? (laughs) (laughs) oh i can't handle it all right well any final final thoughts before we wrap this up i mean i keep having thoughts so for any best i don't (laughs) express them if we want to end this anytime soon true okay so actually i did want to have like sign off question for you guys in relation to this do you think that it would have been better to see the movie first or the book do the book first like which you think would been is a better channel now that you've kind of seen both sides I think it depends on your age. Ooh. Um, I think if you're older, you can appreciate the movie more and be able to maintain your own sense of self watching mm-hmm. it because it is very glamorous, both negatively and positively. Mm-hmm. And if you're younger, the Fight Club is probably better to read because the satire is more clear and yes. it's clear that you do not want to be Tyler Durden. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I think it is very much glamorized in the film, which again, the the casting choices, I think were extremely intentional for that mm-hmm. particular purpose to have that visually packaged that way. I agree. Kendall, what are yeah. your thoughts? Yeah, I don't know. I I 
don't know if I have an answer for that question. <laughs> I keep kind of That's going fair. back and forth because I, yeah, I watched the movie first and I watched it years before I read the book, mm-hmm. but loved the book, but it also wasn't my first Polonuk book. And so mm. I think that like, it's contextually relevant. It kind of depends in addition to your age, like if you've been exposed to his other works, like, are you familiar with his sort of humor style, even though mm-hmm. that was like his first big book, mm-hmm. but I don't think that it took away. Like, I don't think that it detracted from anything having watched the movie first. Mm-hmm. And it was able to sort of like, like we've all talked about how like, you know, Helena Bonham Carter is Marla, like mm-hmm. no one else is Marla. And so I was able to see her when I was reading the book, which totally. I liked. Yep. Totally. But yeah, I, I wouldn't change the order that I was exposed to them in, but maybe other people would, maybe it would be better for other people in a different order, but I'm happy with how it went for me. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that with, with books that have like crazy twists at the end, I normally am of the mindset that I want to read the book and then go see the movie and see how they execute that twist. But with this particular combo, it had such a strong selling point to really drive home that penny drop moment right and the and they they actually like do the flashbacks of what we thought was tyler in the shot was really him just alone and they they go back and refilm those scenes without tyler in it and it was just so visually stunning and you're like your heart just stops because you're like oh my god it was so flawless up until that point where the book you can kind of I don't know if you, you can guess what the ending's going to be, but you start to see that kind of cracking and decaying happening. And you're like, something's going on and I can't put my finger on it. But the movie, I feel like it doesn't really do that. It doesn't give that away. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, we, we're crash landing at this point. And they did such a, a great job of just that twist of an ending. And I think I, I agree. I think the movie, I'm, I'm happy that I saw the movie first because usually it's the other way around. So... Yeah, I think talking about it now, it solidified my favor of the movie over the book because I think the movie overall is like a tighter narrative and it flows more smoothly together as a story. Totally. Um, whereas the book, you can understand that it is a, a first novel, which, mm-hmm. but, and I have read uh, Polonek's other f- books, so it makes me wonder what Fight Club would look like if he were to have, have done it, it later. Today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I did notice like his book. It's interesting that this the sentence structure just like a final sorry another final final thought we could just talk about this forever. <laughs> uh, his sentence structure in the book is like really short p- sentences, like statement, statement, statement. And I thought that was interesting because it it does feel like maybe this is his first book, but also it does feel very deliberate because it's like very succinct thoughts. It's like I'm having this thought, and now I'm having this thought, and now I'm having this thought. And the way that he wrote it out, it's like it's genius. And you don't really get that kind of vibe from the movie because. It, you're you're watching it, you're experiencing it, but the reading aspect, it, it is, I, I do like that aspect of it. And that's yeah. like quintessential Polonuk. Like he's yep. not like a flowery writer by any right. means. And mm-hmm. it, yeah, it is able to express what he's trying to express in a really interesting way because you kind of have to fill in the gaps. Like he makes yeah. you think, you know, he forces you to kind of continue the thought that he was having. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, I think that's why I really like the book is because you're forced to sort of think really deeply about each of the little things that's being said. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, you guys. We made it. Oh, well, we will have no more final thoughts because this will go on for another two hours. <laughs> so 
thank you both for joining me. Let's call that a wrap. Um, I'm so glad you could join me and talk about this. It's stellar discussion. So thank you. Um, before we officially sign off, checking in with you guys, what are you reading? What are you doing? What do you want to highlight? Tell me, tell me your lives and we'll, we'll pick on Kendall first. <laughs> sure. Um, I'm kind of doing a lot of rereading right now. Ooh. I've been rereading a lot of things. I usually do that in the summer, but, um, I started just today actually rereading, um, Austin Wright's novel, Tony and Susan, Ooh. which was the, uh, base for the film adaptation nocturnal animals Mm -hmm. and yeah it's it's interesting kind of going back because I had forgotten a lot of the details about it but um, basically it's the story of an English professor who gets a package in the mail one day and it's um, a copy of a manuscript of a novel that was written by her ex-husband who she hasn't talked to in like 20 years Mm. and he wants her to read the book and give her notes basically and he writes this, like, it's a very dark sort of murder mystery book. And mm. if I'm remembering correctly, there's a lot of sort of blurring the lines between, like, reality and fiction as you're reading it. Because you're reading a book about someone reading a book. Ooh, cool. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, it's uh, I've heard of it. It's on my list. I have not read or seen that yet. But ooh, that sounds good. Keep that in the back pocket. Thank you. And Julie, what are you doing? Uh, I am also rereading, but nothing that sophisticated. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, geez, Julie, why bother? Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I feel like the last few times you've asked that question and reading like, you know, really dark material stuff, which is usually my go-to when people know me for. <laughs> are we but surprised? No. <laughs> right now I'm rereading uh, my favorite trash. I was going to say guilty pleasure, but never feel guilty about your pleasures. I am rereading the Sookie Stackhouse series, which is yes. what the True Blood show is based <laughs> off. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I started on Thursday and I'm already on book six. So, dang, awesome. Julie. Yeah. You know, are you They're watching really it to too? I here and there uh, okay. when I find the time. Like I like I can only watch it when Jensen's down, and that yeah. only gives me like four hours a day to do anything. So <laughs> that's four hours of wasted time, Julie. Why are you not crashing through that thing? Come talking to you, <laughs> Kendall. <laughs> Ooh, okay, point, point. And I got to decide if I'm going to watch True Blood or read a book. So, and right now, honestly, I've been reading the books. So we're getting those. Uh, yeah, because I was, because <laughs> you you are, have been gracious to let us use your HBO account. And I saw somebody was watching. And I was like, who's watching True Blood? <laughs> <Yes>. It's not <laughs> me. <laughs> awesome. Yep. Those are how many books are in that series? Uh, thirteen. If you count really? the like final book, which is just like, a, and here's what happened to all the characters kind of list. <laughs> Great. Yeah. It's a very JK Rowling. If you off. see that, do not buy it because it's always at full price and you want to know what happens to the characters and it's disappointing. So don't do it. <laughs> Great. Yep. Heard it here first. Julius yep. says, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> I did it for you, so I can tell you, don't do it. <laughs> yes, that's my unofficial tagline. We did it so you don't have to, folks. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's amazing. I have not read those books. I really mm-hmm. need to. I've seen that show multiple times, but I need to go back and read those books. I know it's like, so like season one is pretty much on, and then it just completely goes off the rails after that, or, something, or is it season two? Actually, the first three books and seasons are hit the same notes. They're not like, you know, page for page the same, and they like, uh, the show does a lot more. Uh, for each book and season um and then four of both book and show kind of match 
And then, yeah, off the rails after that. Off the rails, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, like, the favorite. one I'm reading now, Suki is dating a were tiger and he's not in the show at all. <laughs> Interesting turn mm-hmm. of events. Yeah, definitely not in there. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right, my lovelies, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a treat. I've always loved listening to your thoughts. <laughs> and a huge thank you to our listeners at home thanks for joining and we will see you guys next time farewell i am jack's waving hand (laughs) (laughs) yes